the title of the message is The Baptism of the Holy Spirit and Praying in Tongues. All right, that ought to make some of you cringe already. That tongues word. It's amazing of all the things in the charismatic evangelical world that causes people to get nervous or even fearful or, or make accusation. It's that one word, tongues, which is nothing more than evidence to me that the devil hates it because it's a gift from God and it's a powerful gift for his children. The reason I'm going in this direction today is I want to follow up a little bit on last week's message from from Clem Ferris. For those of you that weren't here, I would encourage you to go on to our website and listen to Clem's message. It was on prayer. It was a powerful message on prayer. And one of the things that, as I'm going to review just briefly, one of the things that came up that that some of us may not even be familiar with, not understand, might even made a little bit of nerves, uh, nervousness in some people, was he, he talked about praying in the Spirit or praying in tongues or praying in your heavenly language. Whatever you want to call it, it's all the same thing. And he talked about that in the sense that as we pray in the Spirit, we pray in a prayer language of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit gives us, we are praying perfect prayers in the will of God because it's the Holy Spirit praying through us. It removes me from my selfishness, my attitude, my mind. It removes me from that. And some of you might be going, what is he talking about? Everything people have said about this church is true. They are nuts. Well, I'm hoping when I finish... And I'm going to have a lot of slides because I'm going to go through this and cover a lot of ground. And I want you to be able to write down scriptures and things like that because if it's new to you, especially if it's new to you, write these things down. Check this stuff out. Don't believe it just because it's coming from up here, but don't throw it out just because it's coming from up here. Okay? Test it. Last week when Clem's message on prayer, he talked about praying with a shameless audacity. Shameless audacity. I love that phrase. But we need to understand what he was talking about and make sure we get it. We can only pray with shameless audacity when we know we're praying in the will of God. And when we know, he talked about shameless audacity asking prayers, asking God. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father is one of asking. He says over and over, ask me. You don't have because you don't ask. And we want to understand that we want to pray with shameless audacity. We are called to pray that way. But the only way that it's right is if we're praying the will of God. We need to know the Word of God, and we need to be hearing the Holy Spirit, being sensitive to the Holy Spirit. That shamelessly audacious asking prayer. And we can do that when the request is based on the certainty of the answer. And we can be certain of the answer when we know we're praying the will of God. We may not get the timing of it. We don't understand that. He may say uh, something that we're not quite expecting, but we can be certain that he's going to answer it because he hears us when we're praying that way. And the Holy Spirit's leading in prayer is critical for those things to be accomplished. Because if if we're not sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we're not feeling leading of the Holy Spirit, we're probably not going to play shamelessly audacious prayers that are in the will of God. You know, shamelessly audacious doesn't mean we can go to him and try to convince him that our way is right. Doesn't mean we can go to him and, and beg and plead for selfish desires. That's not what it means. But when we know the will of God. In James 4.4 4 it says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. I don't want to ask with the wrong motives. 
I know when I pray in my flesh, there's a pretty good certainty that at least part of my prayer is going to be selfish. That's just the nature of this old man. But when we hear the Holy Spirit leading us in our prayer life, we don't have to worry about that. In Romans 8, 26 and 7, it says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Man, those times when we don't know how to pray. The Spirit will help us. For it says, We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He prays according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit? He's living and dwelling in each one of us as believers. We have access to the Holy Spirit continually because He's there living in us. We're the temple of God. So that shameless audacity in 1 John 5, 14-15, it says, This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. You ever said, I don't think God even hears my prayers? If we're asking in accordance with his will, it's guaranteed, it says in the word of God, he hears us. And then it goes on, and it doesn't stop there. It says, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. That's the kind of shameless audacity we can have in prayer. When we know we're praying in accordance with his will, we can know he will hear us, and we know he will answer. That will change your prayer life when you have that understanding and belief. And what Clem kept telling us last week, and that's why I want to go where I'm going this week, is he says, that's one of the many benefits of our prayer language. When we are praying in the language that the Holy Spirit has given us, that heavenly language, we're praying the perfect will of God because my mind isn't praying, the Spirit within me is praying. And not only are we praying the perfect will of God, it's amazing how often when we're praying in the Spirit like that, the Holy Spirit speaks to us in a language we do understand in our minds, and we're able to pray, telling us how to pray for something. I mean, so often, I don't know how to pray for somebody. We get a prayer request sometimes, we don't know the details. Sometimes the problem's bigger than I think I can even believe for an answer for. I pray in tongues. I pray in the Spirit. And what oftentimes happens is I get a very specific direction to pray in my understanding with my English language. And it comes from the Spirit, and I know then, okay, good. I don't know the situation. I don't understand it all, but I think I have a direction to pray now. And that's what Clem was sharing. And I know that some of us are unfamiliar with this, and some of us are a little nervous about all this. And I'm hoping after we look at some things from the Bible about this, It'll help us to settle it in our own hearts. And it'll also help those of us that are sometimes really confounded when someone comes up to you and says, what's this praying in tongues nonsense you guys talk about? You'll have a way to understand and better explain it to them also. Praying and being led by the Holy Spirit in prayer is the key to knowing we're praying the will of God. And praying in tongues is a very valuable gift given to us to help us pray in the will of God. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and praying and speaking in tongues. Now, if you're familiar with all that stuff, you'll know that's about a four-week series. So here we go. I'm going to start with this, a little background. As evangelicals, 
And we're evangelical Christians, right? But we're also charismatic Christians if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and believe in the gifts and all that stuff. You know, a definition of evangelical, pertaining to or keeping with the Gospels, amen. Emphasis on the authority of Scriptures, amen. Stressing individual conversion through the personal faith in Jesus Christ, amen. Would you agree we are evangelicals? Yes, that's what we are. Charismatics comes from the word charisma, which simply means gift, the gifts of grace, and undeserved benefit from God. So when you put those two things together, I believe that should define who we are as a church. Not necessarily our specific mission, but this is who we are as a church. We believe that Victory Christian Church is a Bible-believing and teaching church. We believe that salvation comes by a personal faith, by grace. It's a grace gift of God, and it's not a works at all. It's a gift of God. That's how we get saved. No works. We also believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we believe it because it's talked about clearly in the book of Acts and other books of the Bible. And we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that they're available for today. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are in the Bible. That's why we believe them. And they're given to the body of Christ to build up the body of Christ until the perfect comes. You know who the perfect is? Jesus. So until the perfect comes back for his church, he has given the gifts to the church to build up the church so they can do the work of the ministry and spread the good news of the gospel with that power and authority and the gifts that he's given us. And when he comes back, we won't need him anymore. But until then, we need him. So they didn't disappear. And as a church, we believe they are for today. And we believe that being a Christian is not a religion. It's a relationship. I don't care about the religions. I care that people know a relationship and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what denomination you attend. If you know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, you're a brother or sister of mine in Christ. That's the key. It's not about religions. It's not about denominations. Do you or do you not know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior? It's a gift of faith, gift of grace, we believe. And then once we get saved, we come to this thing that kind of causes the evangelicals, pure evangelicals, and the charismatics to sometimes have a little debate. Because we believe that there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we'll look at that in a minute. But a lot of evangelical churches say that that, that doesn't happen as a secondary event at all. They believe that the moment of salvation, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believe, and I'll show you scriptures why we believe this, that the moment of salvation, we agree. All of us evangelicals agree that at the moment of salvation, the moment you accept that gift of grace by faith that Jesus died for your sins, at that instant, the Holy Spirit indwells you. I'm born again by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God lives in me. I'm a temple of God. We believe that, and we're in agreement with that. But they believe that's when the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs. We believe that it's a second event with the Holy Spirit. We believe in the indwelling, but we believe it's clear in Scripture that there is a second event. It cannot occur, you cannot be baptized in the Holy Spirit unless you're saved. And the Holy Spirit dwells in you. 
But the baptism of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with your salvation. Okay? We believe that it is a very important distinctive of our church that we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But it is never, ever, ever a distinctive that should cause division and strife between us and other brothers and sisters in the evangelical world. It should never be a thing of division. And sometimes it has been historically. It's been nothing but divisive. Some churches like ours, charismatic, if you want that word, will actually have said that, well, if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. It's not true. It's just not true. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Not true. I would go so far as to say, some people say that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that's true either. I believe you could. It's available. But if you choose not to, you still can be baptized in the Holy Spirit because the Word of God says if you ask the Father, will He not give you the Holy Spirit? If you ask, He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Okay. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Let's see. I should follow my notes because I've got so many of them. Here's a thought for you. Because some of our brothers and sisters in Christ would say, the tongues and thing, that's not that big a deal. That whole baptism of the Holy Spirit, you guys get a little nuts with that. It's, it's really not that big a deal. Here's what I would say. If the disciples, who spent the better part of three years at the feet of Jesus, living with him, eating with him, staying with him, going where he went, getting all of the teaching directly from the lips of Jesus, needed to go and sit in Jerusalem and wait until a baptism of the Holy Spirit came upon them before they could go out and do the mission he called them to. If they needed that, I think we do. It must be important. Because Jesus called them and he says, you're going to go change the world. Go to the ends of the earth. You're going to change the world. You're going to carry out my great commission. But don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. doesn't say comes in you. It says comes upon you. Okay, so first, the Holy Spirit with you. I'm going to look at this one step at a time. Before you are saved, you can't get saved unless the Holy Spirit's working with you. He doesn't live in you yet. But he's starting to work on you. He's starting to soften your heart. He's starting to maybe convict you of sin. He's starting to draw you. He's trying to woo you. It's kind of like the courtship, if you would. But the Holy Spirit woos us. The Holy Spirit's with us. And he begins to speak to you and draws you to God. And eventually, we surrender ourselves to Christ. We accept the gift of salvation through Jesus In John 14, verse 17, it says, The Spirit of truth, which is the Holy Spirit, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit with you. You know, all the unbelievers that are out there, the Holy Spirit's working on them. They're on their way to salvation if they would just choose to receive the gift of salvation. The Holy Spirit's working on him, wooing him. 
And the moment you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit now lives in you. And Jesus is speaking here to the disciples. He's with you, but he will be in you. So that's the with you, Holy Spirit. Then there's the in you, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know, we're pretty much all in agreement with any truly Christian denomination, church, whatever, when it comes to the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. At the moment of salvation, we agree that the Spirit moves in. There's a whole lot of scriptures. I think I've just put, I think I put two on the, the projector. I'm not sure. But in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And then in in 1 Corinthians 6.19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and that you're not your own anymore? And we could go on. I could probably list 20, 30 scriptures that pertain to the Holy Spirit living in us. I mean, we say that, and and it just kind of goes right past us. It's one of those things I wish we could all just be forced to go meditate on. The power of God that created the universe by speaking it into existence lives in you, lives in me. It's so mind-blowing none of us get excited. Think about that. Meditate on that. When I lay hands on somebody and I say, in the name of Jesus, be healed, I can say that with confidence because the Holy Spirit that lives in me created the universe when Jesus and, and the Father spoke the words. It's, it's mind-blowing. I'm glad you're all excited. You're just worried about the tongue stuff. Scriptural examples of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on all these, but I want us to understand that we believe there's two distinct events, the indwelling at the instant of salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which can occur any time after that moment. And some people do receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit the same day of salvation, the same hour of salvation. It can happen, but it can't happen before you're saved, but it can happen any moment after that. And all you have to do is ask. And sometimes you don't even know what you're asking for. I know some people, I say, I don't think I've ever been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Really? Have you ever just cried out to God and said something simply like, God, I just need more. I don't know what I'm missing, but I want all of you. I want all you have to give me. You've probably been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You may not have understanding of all the benefits. You may not even attempt at a prayer language. But you're crying out to God, and it says when you ask him, he'll give it to you. And I think sometimes, even in our lack of understanding or our ignorance of the facts, many people have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But all of the benefits, it's like, it's like you know, I got this wonderful computer on my desk, this great big screen, it's awesome, but I probably don't know how to use 3% of it. I'm not exaggerating. And that's how it is so with so many of us with the Holy Spirit the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there is so much more there than we understand. The power to to overcome those besetting sins in our life. The power to witness and be a testimony. I mean, if, if if Jesus told the disciples, you wait before you go until the Holy Spirit comes, there's power there. As a matter of fact, he says it. The power will come upon you. I need that kind of power just so I don't commit those same old sins that I my flesh likes. 
I need a power to overcome. I need a power to, to overcome my, my fear to share Jesus with somebody. I need the power. I don't know what words to say. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to give me the words to say. And my words are nothing but meaningless opinions unless the power of the Holy Spirit is upon them. There's so many things. And prayer. Try to pray a prayer sometime and never, never let any selfishness enter into it. Oh, that's hard. The perfect will of God in our prayer life. One of the things that helped me to grab a hold of the reality that there's two events. For me, I, I, I questioned, okay, so the disciples were told to go. Did they not have the Holy Spirit? They were told to go to Jerusalem and wait. Did they not have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in them? Yet. And therefore, did they get it all at one time? With the Holy Spirit with them, and he said the Holy Spirit will be in you. And I believe in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, and I'm just going to read the last verse. This is the day of Jesus' resurrection. He has made an appearance with his disciples who are scared and they're hiding away behind a locked door. And Jesus comes in, and he speaks to them. He shows them his hands. He shows them his side to make sure they understand who it is that's standing before them, that it's not some kind of ghost. It says the disciples got excited, and they rejoiced. And Jesus then says, Peace be with you. And then in verse 22, it says he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. I believe at that moment they became what we would consider New Testament Christians, that the Holy Spirit now was in them at that moment. And then a little later he says, now go to Jerusalem and wait until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit aren't just my words. It's not my phrase. That's what the Bible says. It calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then we see a number of different times. And as you read the book of Acts, sometimes, most of the time, when we read it, we really don't keep track in our head and understand the time frames and how much time is elapsing from one event to another event. We read the book of Acts and we just assume, golly, they had a busy couple of three weeks. Not the case at all. When we read about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the first place we read about it is Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Then we can also go on and read about it in Acts 9, verse 17, when Saul, after he has had his Damascus Road experience, which was his conversion, he became saved on the road, and then they had to lead him to the town because he was blind. And then God says to Ananias, go to this man, go to Paul, lay hands on him and pray for him and say, and you know what he prayed? Receive the Holy Spirit. He was already saved. Jesus is... His death and resurrection had passed. The only way, as soon as he got saved, the Holy Spirit indwelt him, just like it does every one of us. So we see there in Acts chapter 9, he's baptized in the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 48, the whole, pretty much the whole chapter, we see that this is about Cornelius, a centurion. And you may not realize this, but ten, this is 10 years after Pentecost. 10 years have elapsed. 
and they go and they go to his family and the gospel is shared with them. They all get saved. They all get baptized and they all get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then they did that crazy thing. They all spoke in tongues. Ten years after the day of Pentecost. And then the last one I want to write down here is Acts 19. This is 20 years after Pentecost. 20 years have passed, and Paul is on his way or in Ephesus. And he finds a group of disciples. It calls them disciples. They're believers. He finds this group, and he says to them, Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And they go, Huh? We haven't even heard about the Holy Spirit. 20 years since the day of Pentecost. And there's a group of believers that believe in Jesus. He says, well, what were you baptized in? Well, we were baptized in John's baptism of repentance. Oh, he says, well, that was okay then. But now you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And it says they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And then they were all baptized in the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. 20 years had passed from the day of Pentecost till this event. Last week, Clem shared when he was preaching on prayer the story of where the, uh, the, the guest came to a man's house in the middle of the night and the man didn't have any bread to feed him, so he went to his neighbor's door and pounded on his door. And he talked about the persistence of prayer. And he went to a friend. I want to remind you, Jesus isn't just our friend. He's our father. He's our God. We're his children. God the Father. We belong to him. So it's not like we got to go beat down the door. But we need to stay persistent. But he used that. And then the verse I want to just point out is the very last verse, verse 13. It says this. And this has to do with how we would receive the Holy Spirit. Because a lot of people come to me and say, Jesus, if I ask for the Holy Spirit and I get a prayer language, how do I know it's not the devil? Because some of our evangelical brothers and sisters have told us that speaking in tongues is of the devil. Don't go there. Don't go near that. How can you know? Well, it's simple. Read verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, it says, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How many of you asked for the Holy Spirit to indwell you when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Think about this. This is a trick question. You didn't have to ask him. If you did, that's okay. But you didn't have to ask. You're not saved if he didn't indwell you the moment you accepted Christ. That fast. It was done. We don't ask. We don't have to ask. If you want to, go ahead. He's already there if you've accepted Christ. What is he talking about? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you ask the Father, what's he going to give you? He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. He's not going to give you a demon. And then there's another scripture you can look at in Matthew 3, verse 11, in the last few words of that. And this is what John the Baptist is sitting with a few of his disciples. And Jesus is walking by and they go, gee, who's that? Are we supposed to follow him or are we supposed to follow you, John? We've been following you. And he, he basically, he tells them, you know what? There he is. He's the guy whose sandals I am not even worthy to tie his sandals. And then he finishes it up in the last part of verse 11. He's the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, is that up there? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit 
and fire. Is the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the Bible? Numerous places. Who does the baptizing? Jesus. What does He baptize you in? The Holy Spirit. When you've been baptized in water, if you came and the elders of the church or someone baptized you in water, we did the baptizing. The water was the element you were baptized in. It was symbolic of your death and resurrection in Jesus Christ. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is different. Jesus is the baptizer. I will baptize you. He will. Jesus in the Holy Spirit and fire. He's the baptizer. The Holy Spirit is what we are baptized in. Like when it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be immersed in it. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How do we receive it? We ask for it. Just ask for it. We ask for it in humility. We ask by faith. And we can't have faith because it says if you ask him, he will give it to you. And we ask with confidence. You don't have to ask him for the Holy Spirit and wonder, did he give it to me? Did he give it to me? Now, in Scripture, and we're going to talk about tongues in just a moment, in Scripture we see one of the, the initial evidence of that baptism of the Holy Spirit was tongues. But do you have to speak in tongues? I get that so I ask so often. And my answer is no. You don't have to speak in tongues. Then I follow up with a question like, why wouldn't you want to? But you don't have to because speaking in tongues requires you to step out in faith. Just like accepting an invisible Savior for your salvation by faith. I mean, which is harder to believe for? That some guy who died on a cross 2,000 years ago was God in the flesh and he died for my sins, therefore I'm completely forgiven? All my sins, past, present, and future? Or to believe that I can speak in a new language that I won't understand? Granted, they're both a little hard to believe, aren't they? They both require faith. So when we ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are receive it. Do we want to step out and receive our prayer language? You've got to open your mouth. It's pretty tough to get your prayer language if you don't open your mouth. Did you all understand that the first time? And then if you open your mouth and don't move your tongue, not much is going to happen. So it's by faith I receive it. And you might have to jumpstart it in the flesh. And that's okay. But when it becomes your true prayer language, you will know. Because your brain is no longer involved. I can, well, I was going to say I can do math problems and pray in tongues. I, I can't do math problems at any time. But if I could do math problems, I could do math problems and be praying in tongues. Because my mind is not involved. Because my spirit, the spirit in me is doing the praying. Does that make sense? Not really, right? That's what's happening. It says your mind isn't involved in it. It's the Holy Spirit praying through you the perfect will of God. Would I like that? I think so. Do you want that? Do you have that? Would you like that? I hope so. To pray the perfect will of God. Okay, where am I? Good news, I'm on page 3. In the New Testament, we see three spots 
where it's explicitly said they spoke in tongues. There are numerous other spots where it's talked about and inferred. But I'm going to just give you the three places where it's mentioned on the day of Pentecost, they spoke in tongues. And, you know, people build all kinds of doctrine about something that's not told us in that Pentecost experience. You know, so people will say they were all sharing the gospel in tongues. There is zero evidence of that. They were praising God, glorifying God. Manifest, they, they were bragging about God is what it says. That doesn't mean they were sharing the gospel. Well, it can only be a known dialect. Well, that could be true. I don't know that, but I don't know where they're getting that from to be so, so solid on that because what was the miracle? That they all heard in their own language or that they were speaking in their own language? doesn't say. It just says they heard it in their own language. And I'm thinking to myself, if they all heard it in their own language, why did they think they were drunk? It doesn't make sense. But people build doctrines on things that we don't know for sure. I just want to look at what we can know for sure and say, is that sufficient for me? And it says they spoke in tongues when the Holy Spirit baptized them. We see the same thing with Cornelius, who I just mentioned in Acts 10, and 10 years after the event. They got saved, they got baptized, and they got the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they all spoke in tongues. And it was at his house with his family and servants. I don't think they spoke in tongues in you know, 28 different dialects for people that weren't there. Could have been dialects, I don't know. But I'm not going to build doctrine on something I don't know. All I know is they spoke in tongues that was not their normal language. And then we saw the same thing in Ephesus, where they spoke in tongues. There is no example of anyone speaking in tongues for the purpose of sharing the gospel with foreigners or anyone else in all of Scripture. And yet there are ministries out there that will rail on you that, yes, tongues are in the Bible. We've got to agree with that because, geez, there's that word. But they were always sharing the gospel. No, there's no evidence. And that's why I just want to encourage us. When we study the Bible, we got to set aside our preconceived notions. And then we need to study the Bible for ourselves and say, what's it say? Get help if you need to from other brothers and sisters in Christ, commentaries, lexicons. But what does it say? And let's just not add to it. Let's not subtract from it. Matter of fact, we're told not to do either of those, clearly, in Scripture. When we look at this tongue thing, we see two different kinds of tongues. And boy, i got to go fast. Two different kinds of tongues. I just call one a public tongue and one's the private tongue. And here's a couple scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 14, 2. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to man. Private tongue. If I'm speaking in a tongue and I'm not speaking to man, who am I speaking to? but to God. He understands. We wouldn't. But then if we look in 14, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 5, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would have there have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets. Aha! Public tongues. If I stood up here and prayed in tongues out loud, Hopefully it wouldn't offend anybody, but it wouldn't bless you much because you wouldn't understand a word I was saying. <laughs> Neither would I. So what good would it be? And Paul says, I'd rather speak one word in 
my native tongue that you understand than 10,000 words in tongues. Does that mean 10,000 words in tongues are bad? No. But if I want to build up the body of Christ, it needs to be understood. So they're in chapter 13 of Corinthians. It lists all these spiritual gifts that are giving to the church. One of them is the speaking in tongues, and one of them is the interpretation of tongues. So if there's a public tongue given, we need to trust God that someone's going to step out by faith and receive the interpretation and share the interpretation. Guess what? They don't go to hell if they don't. Because it takes just as much faith to give the interpretation as it does to give the tongues. And sometimes we're afraid to give the message in tongues, so we don't do it. And no one knows you missed it. But sometimes you step out in faith and give the message in tongues and you're praying under your breath as hard as you can possibly pray. Please, someone give the interpretation so they don't think I'm nuts. It takes just as much faith to have the interpretation. But that's the public tongue. Private tongue between me and God. He understands. Public tongue, it's given. An interpretation is required. There's two different things. If you do have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And it's all going to be on the screen, but it's going to be a lot of words. But if you read this chapter and you don't understand that there's two different kinds of tongues, public tongues, private tongues, you're going to think Paul is schizophrenic or something because it doesn't make sense. So if you read it and you don't understand that, I guarantee you you're not getting the message. You're just reading through and go, I don't know what that is all about, but let's go to chapter 15. And it's interesting to me that in chapter 13, Paul goes through all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Prophecy, interpretation, words of knowledge, tongues, goes through serving. He goes through all of those gifts. And then chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, we often refer to it as the love chapter. Gets read at, gets read at weddings all the time. And there is a verse in there in, chapter, in verse 13, chapters 8, 9, and 10, verses 8, 9, and 10, that those that believe, they call it cessationism. They believe the gifts passed away. It mentions where there's prophecy, where there's tongues, and where there's knowledge. When the perfect comes, they will pass away. Who did we agree that the perfect is? Jesus. Has he come back yet? I hope not. We missed him. So the perfect hasn't come back yet. So they haven't passed away yet. They take the position that when the Scripture was canonized, the Bible, that was the perfect. And therefore, tongues passed away. Oh, yeah, prophecy too. Oh, yeah, I guess knowledge did too. But that's the argument they'll use. But it's interesting to me. We get the gifts in chapter, chapter 12. The emphasis on love, because without love, all those things are nothing but clanging symbols. And then in chapter 14, he goes into talking about prophecy and tongues. And if we were going to go through all of those verse by verse, which we're not going to do, but I want you to look at verse 1. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. I want them. I'd love all of them. Probably not going to get them all, but I'd love all of them. Jesus had them all. I don't think anybody else has. But he says, earnestly desire them. Don't be afraid of them. They didn't pass away. Desire them. Talk about a difference. 
And when you look at verse 2, it says, The one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to man, but to God. We've already talked about that. So Paul is saying the one who speaks in a tongue talks to God. You notice he doesn't say, don't do that. It's bad. Don't ever do that. It's the devil. He says, when you do, you're talking to God. I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing. So in this, he never, ever, ever says, don't talk in tongues. He's wanting to understand the difference between a public and a private tongue. And it goes on in verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. And if you would also read Jude verse 20, there's only one chapter, it says, but you, my beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. All of the other gifts of the Holy Spirit, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given for this purpose, to build up the body of Christ. But here's this gift called tongues that's given to edify self. Build up me. We live in a world where we are be constantly being drained empty. If praying in tongues builds me up, we probably need to do more of it every day. It edifies us. He doesn't say don't do it. He says it edifies us. Verse 5. This is really crazy if we're not supposed to speak in tongues because I wish every one of you, I would like all of you to speak in tongues. All of you to speak in tongues. Prayer language or private tongue? It's not crystal clear, but it really doesn't matter. If it's our private tongue, we do it in private or quietly without making a scene. If it's a public tongue, we do it believing there will be an interpretation. But, oh, Paul says, I wish you all would speak in tongues because it edifies yourself. It builds you up. You're praying perfect prayers in the perfect will of God. Verses 6 through 12, I'm not going to read through all that, but you sure can. But what Paul explains here is for a message, a public message of tongues, he's just saying, hey, if you're going to give one, there needs to be an interpretation or it's worthless. All it is is noise. He doesn't say, boy, are you in trouble. Boy, are you condemned. He's just saying, it's just, it's not doing anybody any good. You know, so what if somebody gets all emotional and, and instead of praying in tongues, speaks the tongue out loud? Nothing. It just was a a small blurp distraction. Didn't do us any good. That's all. But we're in such fear that we wouldn't, most of us, even know what to do with that unction by the Holy Spirit to give a prayer, a a message in tongues. We're scared to death. We want to be sensitive, but we also want to be open to all of the gifts. If they're here to build up the body of Christ, we'd like them all. Verse 13. He says, if you have a public tongue, pray that they would interpret. Why? So they understand. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Public or private tongue? Private. He's going back and forth. Public, private, public, private. If you don't understand that there's two of them, it's all confusing. He says, if you're, if you're going to, to pray a public tongue, pray that they would interpret. And if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, private. And we look at Scripture, to me, it's just clear as all get out that praying in tongues, praying with your spirit, praying with your heavenly language, whatever phrase you see, all mean the same thing. 
Paul goes on in verse 15, and what does he say? I will pray with my spirit, private, but also pray with my mind in a language everybody understands. He says, I'm going to do them both. One's not bad and one's not good. One's really good in the private time talking to God. The other one's not any good at all, the public one, if there's not an interpretation. He says, I'm going to do them both. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm going to praise in tongues. I'm going to sing in tongues. I'm going to sing in my language with understanding. I'm going to sing in my spirit. Driving down the road, crank up the music and sing in the spirit. Whatever it is you're singing is perfect praise from the Holy Spirit to the Father. No flesh involved. Anybody hate that thought? I hope not. God, what could be better than that? Just praise him in the spirit. And Paul says, I'm going to do both. I'm going to do both. And then in verses 18 and 19, he goes way out there and he says, I'm glad that I speak in tongues more than all of you. I think he was praying in tongues all the time. They're stoning him. He's praying in tongues. He's getting driven out of the city. He's praying in tongues. They're threatening to beat him to a pulp. He's praying in tongues. He's in prison. I have a sneaking suspicion he's saying in tongues and he's saying in his language. But he's, whatever he did, he's saying, I'm glad I pray in tongues more than all of you do. But he does say then, but in the church, I would rather speak. One word, basically. In the church, in my language that you can understand than 10,000 words with my tongue. Both are good. They have different benefits, different applications. Then if you drop down to verses 26 through 29, it talks about doing everything in order with, with uh, it, which shows we can control our tongue. He says, you know, if you're going to pray and speak in a tongue, let up maybe three, no more. We want to have some structure. We don't want to get goofy. He's writing this to the Corinthians because they'd gotten goofy. And he's sending this, correcting them. He's not telling them don't ever pray in tongues. He's not telling them don't ever speak in tongues publicly. He says, let's do it all right and understand how they're supposed to be used. And he explains that in verses 26 through 29. Don't stop doing it. Do it correctly. And then in the very last verse, I want to share verse 39. He says, therefore, my brothers... Be eager to prophesy, because I'm doing that in English for us, so we'd all understand it. But look what he says then. But do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now look how much. We have to pretty much ignore a whole chapter of Paul's writing to the church at Corinth to say that tongues don't exist today, to say that they've passed away, to to say that somehow or other we've got to be fearful and afraid of that. And on the contrary, and this is what Clem was saying to us last Sunday, and I wanted to make sure we understood it. This is a gift that's given to us by God. When we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's available to all of us. And you say, I don't want to talk in tongues. I say, that's okay. I love you. You're saved. Bless your heart if you know Jesus. But I will also say, are you sure? Do you ever need to build up your own self? Do you ever need to be edified by the Spirit of God? We have this weapon. What do you do when you don't know how to pray? I don't know. I just cry. Well, that's okay, but let's do something more effective. Let's pray in tongues while we're crying. We have this ability. 
Now, I know I went through it so fast, and it's already been too long, but I want to encourage you, if you have questions, please talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to one of your brothers and sisters that have, have experienced this and have an understanding of it, because I know we're not all on the same page, and that's okay. This isn't a badge of honor that makes you a better Christian. Don't feel like a lesser Christian. It's a gift that we can have if we want it, by faith to receive it. That's it. Okay. Nobody threw anything? I hope that's... You edit this. Who put, you edit all this, don't you, Mike, when you put it on the computer? Not too much? Leave the oops on there, okay? Let's close in prayer. Lord, I do pray that if there's anything that I've spoken that is in error, God, I pray that you would not allow it to harm anybody here. But Lord, I pray that what is of truth from your word, God, would settle into our hearts and spirits. Give us an understanding. Father, we pray that that spirit of fear, fear of man, fear of religion, God, our previous biases, whatever it is, none of that can interfere with what your word says. So Lord, I pray you would reveal truth from your word by your Holy Spirit to each one of us. And God, I do thank you and praise you even as even as Paul said, God, we will pray in our spirit. We will pray with our understanding. God, that we can pray the will of God perfectly by your Holy Spirit praying through us. And give us a sensitivity to your spirit, even as we're praying, that we might know how to pray with others in our normal language. Father, we ask this, that you'd be glorified in our lives and in this church. Empower us to overcome sin. Empower us to be better missionaries, to share the gospel message with those we come in contact with. God, we need your empowerment by your Holy Spirit. I pray now, Lord, you would go with each one of us. We've got busy weeks ahead of us. But, Lord, I pray that you would watch over over us, keep us safe. God, draw us to yourself that we would come apart for those quiet times with you. Give us the grace to do that. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.